0: was the baptism of john from heaven or from man and they discussed it with one another saying if we say from heaven he will say why did you not believe him but if we say from man all the people will stone us to death for they are convinced that john was a prophet so they answered they did not know where it came from and jesus said to them neither will i tell you by what authority i do these things and he began to tell the people this parable a man planted a vineyard and led it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant, but they also beat him and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent yet a third. This one also they wounded and cast out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him.
1: Morning church. Good morning. It's a few different churches here this morning. But when I say good morning church or I say hey church when I'm speaking, I'm speaking to all of us, not choosing anyone. We're all here to worship Jesus together this morning. I know the slides weren't quite working up there, but in case anyone was wondering, we're in the end of Luke chapter 19 and the beginning of Luke chapter 20. We're on a a journey with Jesus through the gospel of Luke. And for the last several years of Jesus' life, he's been journeying all throughout the countryside of Judea. And now, at the climatic end of his life, he's arrived at Jerusalem, and that's where we're at now, getting closer to the end. So even if you haven't been on the journey the whole time, you got here at the best part. So glad, glad you're here. Um, we're going to hear this morning about Jesus' authority. Now, authority is not something that we tend to be excited about when it's someone else having authority over us. Parents, do your, do your kids like it when you have authority over them all the time? No, they, they don't. There's, there's different moments where it's hard for them and it's hard for us to have other people who have authority over us. But it's really good. Like, Have you ever seen... A child who grew up without any authority, how that turns out for them, how how they end up acting and treating other people, It's it's not pretty, is it? I'm just thinking of my own self and my upbringing and thinking it was really good that I had authority over me when I was growing up. I come from a family that likes to go deer hunting. And so as a young man... I would go deer hunting with my family and one way my dad would exercise his authority he would say don't ever point a gun at someone ever. How many of you guys think that's a good use of authority? (laughs) And it's a good thing because I had had the the first gun I had you you, you pull back the hammer when you're ready to shoot it and the way to De-arm it is you'd have to put your finger back on the hammer and squeeze it slowly to let it down. Now, that's not a good idea when it's minus 20 degrees out and your fingers are frozen, right? And one time, I remember that hammer slipped out of my thumb and boom, the gun went off. and I just about had a heart attack when I was 12 years old. And it's a good thing that I had good authority over me to make sure that something didn't happen to anyone. Now, Jesus has all authority over us. He does. He has all authority over us. And he wants more and more of his authority to penetrate into more and more parts of our lives daily. And the sad thing is, rather than welcoming that as something for our good we oftentimes push back against that. Like we don't like it, we don't want it. It's so common and so easy in our culture to complain about our boss because we don't like authority over us. So the question I want to ask this morning is if it's so good for Jesus to have authority over us and if we need it but we don't really want it, how do we grow in wanting Jesus to rule over more parts of our lives? I want to grow in this. Like, I don't want to be a Christian who's like, fine, I guess I'll do what Jesus wants me to do. I want to want to do what Jesus wants me to do. Is anyone with me? And I believe that this passage of Scripture is going to help us get there. To help us want to want Jesus' authority in our lives. Not be pushing back, not be resisting him, but wanting him to rule over more parts of our lives. So we hop into chapter 19, and it says in verse 47, and he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the city were seeking to destroy him but they did not find anything they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words. So Jesus is in the temple with the leaders, and things are getting, we could use the word, spicy. Right? In fact, they're, they're getting so much so that these leaders are seeking to, it says, destroy him. Okay, so another way you could translate that word destroy is assassinate so these leaders they hate Jesus so much that they desire to assassinate him and the only thing holding them back from assassinating Jesus is all these crowds that are hanging on every word right so they would literally go up and stick a dagger in him if they could that that's how much the animosity is but they can't because there's a tons of witnesses and they Do not want them to do that. So instead, they're going to have a verbal showdown of words. We're about to see our Lord enter into conflict with his enemies. A verbal conflict with his enemies. And the people are watching and listening in. And he's fighting for their hearts to be free from the influence of false teachers and liars and under his good influence and his good authority. There's there's two alternatives. The people will either be under the authority of the false teachers, which will lead them to death, or the good authority of Jesus, that will lead them to life. So let's, let's see how this conflict plays out, how this war of words plays out. Chapter 20, verse 1. One day, as Jesus was teaching in the temple, sorry, as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes with the elders came up and said to him, tell us by what authority you do these things or who it is that gave you this authority. So Jesus is in the temple teaching. If you remember from last week from Pastor Sam's sermon, Jesus went into the temple and he found the temple commercialized. Right, So and people were using religion there in order to earn a profit. They had turned a place of worship into a place that sold things to people. It would be kind of like if we set up an APC merchandise store right by the communion table. And Jesus comes into that environment, and using the force of his personality, he starts flipping over the tables and drives away false teachers who are not actually leading people closer to Jesus and now he is teaching in that space. He has the people who are being led falsely and he's teaching them right worship and right order and right pursuit of God. And these these leaders see him right in their spot teaching their people and they're going to oppose him. Right? They want to have the people back Who were following them, who Jesus is now teaching rightly, after he denounced their false religious system and their false authority, and is said teaching them good things from God's word that they need to know. So the first thing they do when they're trying to undermine Jesus is they attack his authority. You guys see that? They attack his authority. This is the way the enemy works when he's trying to separate us from Jesus, when he's trying to separate people from Jesus, the first thing he can do is attack Jesus' authority. They say to him, tell us by what authority you do these things or who it is that gave you this authority. In other words, Jesus, we question whether or not you have authority to walk into this place, to cast us out of the place of teaching, to start teaching in our place. Do you have the authority to do this? Who Who are you, Jesus? We also have the same tendency to question Jesus' authority. This is where our hearts go when we don't want to obey Jesus. Right? We're okay submitting to his authority on Sunday morning, right now, Right? This is Jesus' time. This is Jesus' space. But then when we step into other spaces and other environments, like the car ride home, like parenting our children, like making entertainment choices, like making decisions of what friends we're going to be with or how we're going to spend our time, all of a sudden it's like Jesus doesn't have authority. So it sounds really spectacularly awful what these leaders are doing. And we think, man, I would never do something like that until all of us will be tempted to act like Jesus doesn't have authority. Even today. Even today. Part of the fall is that our hearts no longer love the authority of Jesus. That's one of the saddest things about the fall. And we love to come up with reasons or just not even think about his authority and act as if he doesn't have it at different times and places. So we would be mistaken not to see the same tendencies in these leaders in us. Questioning the authority of Jesus. Jesus is going to answer them. And he's going to do so very directly. He answered them, I also will ask you a question. Now tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why do you not believe him? But if we say from man, all the people will stone us to death, For they are convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know where it came from. And Jesus says, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. So Jesus is not interested in having a discussion with these leaders about his authority. Instead, he's interested in exposing their hypocrisy, and he goes right after them and asks them a question so direct that they wither on the spot and have nothing they can say against him. He poses them a question about John the Baptist that they cannot answer. Now, John the Baptist, if we remember all the way back to the beginning of Luke, was a prophet who was preparing the way for Jesus. His ministry was about Jesus, And he was baptizing people, saying, you need to repent of your sins and turn to Jesus. So when they ask, when Jesus asks them, is the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Jesus is asking them, was this man, his ministry, his message, was this from God? Or was this something that he made up? Now, they can't answer that question because they'd already rejected John, right? They've already rejected John. They don't believe that they need to repent and follow Jesus. They've made that clear for the last several years. So if they say to the people, yeah, we think John's baptism is from heaven, then it will become immediately clear that they're actually opponents of God. What they are will become immediately exposed and clear to the people. So so they're talking and they're like, we can't tell the truth. We can't tell everyone the truth that we think the baptism of John was from man. Or from heaven. And we can't say it's from man either. Because they think that John the Baptist was a true prophet. So if we say to them that we think John the Baptist was a false prophet. These people might actually stand up and kill us right here on the spot. They might stone us for blasphemy. So what do they do? They do what apparently politicians have done for thousands of years. Who, when they don't have a good answer that will make them look good, they say, well, oh, gosh, I don't know. And immediately there, they reveal that their, their legitimacy of questioning with Jesus is nothing. They can't even answer a simple question like that. And he is a legitimate authority who they cannot stand up against. I I love how quickly he flips the tables on them. They were coming into that space to try to get Jesus killed. With a single question, he has their backs to the wall, and they're at the point of almost being killed by this crowd. It's a beautiful picture that Jesus always wins. He always wins. There isn't any enemy he can't defeat. Whether it's our flesh, whether it's the world, whether it's the devil, Jesus always wins, and this is a picture of how effortlessly he wins. This is really good news for us as we suffer against temptation, as we suffer against persecution, as we suffer against everything and anything that's taking us away from Jesus. There will be a day where things cannot take us away from Jesus because Jesus will defeat all those things. He always wins. All the time. And he shows in this parable that he has all authority. So when Jesus is pushing into our lives saying, I need more authority from you over this and that, over your entertainment decisions And your friend decisions over the way you spend your time in the evening when you get home from work. I want authority over that. I want to shape that. He's legitimate and he's right to do so. They came after his authority, he defended his authority, and they almost lost their lives in the process. Jesus always wins. So he's successfully defended himself now, right? Jesus has successfully defended himself against their attack against his authority. And now he's going to go on the offense. He's going to tell a parable, which is a story that makes a point. Jesus loves to tell these stories that make a point against the leaders and for the sake of the people. We see in verse 9 that he's going to tell it to the people. And here's the parable that he tells. And he began to tell the the parable, tell the people this parable: A man planted a vineyard and let it out to tenants, and went into another country for a long while. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant. But they also at him and treated him shamefully, and he sent him away empty-handed. And he sent yet a third, and this one they also wounded and cast out. Then the leader, Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Let us kill him, so that the inheritance may be ours and they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He said, he will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When they heard this, they said, surely not. There's a lot going on in this parable, in this story. So I'm just going to ask, ask and answer six questions. And these six questions, I think, are going to help us figure out what points Jesus is making in this parable about his authority, about his rule, and about the people's rejection of his rule. So question one. What does this parable teach about the tenants? The tenants were the temporary owners who took over this vineyard while this man was on a journey. What does the parable teach us about the tenants? It teaches us that the man was asking for their loyalty when he was asking them to surrender the fruit of the vineyard to them. They're being put to the test at this point. Before they were just trusted to take care of the vineyard, they're being tested when the master asks for fruit. Are they loyal or are they not? And the question is clearly no. Because as servant after servant comes, they beat those servants. And finally, as the beloved son comes, they kill the son. One thing could not be clearer from this parable than anything else. And it's that these tenants are rebellious. They're opposing the man who is in charge and the owner of the vineyard. Question two. Who are the tenants? Who are the tenants? This is a symbolic way that Jesus is criticizing the leaders who are right in front of him. They are the tenants. They are the ones who had received a temporary charge over God's people. They and the leadership who'd come before them in Jewish history, generation after generation. The Old Testament will actually use the word servant to refer to a prophet from time to time. So what these servants are, are a picture of prophets coming to the people of God and their leaders in generation after generation and saying, it's time to follow God. It's time to turn from your sin. It's time to come to him. And the repeated beating of the servants is a repeated picture of the people's persistent rebellion against God. Okay? So we have a picture of a God sending servant after servant, after servant, and a picture of the people they're going to, refusing, rebelling, and disobeying. Opposition, over time, repeatedly, is the picture that this parable is painting for us. What does the fruit represent? Question three. What does the fruit represent? We know from other places in the Gospel of Luke That fruit represents the thoughts, the feelings, and the behaviors that result from having a changed heart. So John the Baptist, during his ministry earlier on in Luke, says, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Repentance is the inward renewal, the inward change of the heart, allegiance away from sin and self, to Jesus. And the fruits are the new ways of thinking, of feeling, and of acting outwardly that are a result of repentance. So the the owner of the vineyard, when he's asking for fruit, what he's asking for is, how have your lives changed to conform to be like me, to love me and to love other people? That's what fruit is in this story, is the product of a changed heart. Okay, you guys with me? Okay. So then the fourth question I want us to ask is what does this parable teach about us? What it teaches us about ourselves is that appearing godly is not what impresses God. I'm going to say that again. Appearing godly is not what impresses God. These leaders appeared godly. Everyone would have thought of them as godly people. Other people thinking of you as a godly person, thinking of me as a godly person, is not what pleases God. God. Bearing fruit does. Having a life increasingly changed to be like Jesus in every area of our lives is what God is looking for. Not someone who can appear to be godly. The thing that struck me about this parable was that you don't have to be a persecutor of the church or a Satanist, or something like that to be in opposition to Jesus. You just have to not bear fruit. Not bearing fruit, that means having other loyalties and allegiances that are above Jesus is the same thing as being in opposition to Jesus. These leaders would never say we are against God. They would say we represent God and we teach people about God and we serve God. But because their allegiances were not actually to him in all of life, they were opposing him. They were opposing him. Which means that this parable is a call to us to reflect on all of our lives and think and ask Jesus sincerely, in what way are we not bearing fruit? In what area of our life is he not yet Lord? Lord? One area for me that came to mind are my entertainment choices over the last few years. The novels I read, the films I watch. There's content that I consumed that I would not have if Jesus was Lord over that part of my life. And by God's grace... The Spirit is bringing up different areas of all of our lives in this room that we haven't yet submitted to the authority of Jesus and haven't yet borne fruit. And He's so good to bring those up to us so that we can begin to bear fruit. Question five What does this parable teach us about God? What does this parable teach us about God? Even though God requires all loyalty, even though he requires all allegiance, and that sounds heavy, and it is heavy, he's far more generous than he is demanding. I'm going to say that again. Even though God requires all loyalty from us, he's far more generous than he is demanding. Over-the-top generous. We see that he's over-the-top generous when he doesn't send one servant, but a second servant. And he doesn't stop there. He sends a third servant. And the Greek says they traumatize that servant. They traumatize him. And how... Does the man respond after they traumatize the third servant? Does he kill them then? Does he end them then? He sends the beloved son. He sends that which is most precious to him in order to win back the allegiance of these rebellious tenants. It shows that God's generosity goes to every length and extreme in order to win our allegiance. He's not trying to get us to begrudgingly obey him, like to force ourselves into it. He's trying to win our allegiance by being so good to us that we want to obey him. That's why he doesn't use violence and force to get the allegiance of these tenants. He uses generosity And as he asks for all your allegiance this morning, he's asking you with more generosity than anyone has ever shown you. As we hold out against him and act like he's too exacting, too demanding, too harsh, he's actually being generous to us. Giving us more moments to repent. Giving us a son who's eager to forgive us. Giving us everything we need to be right with him. As our God demands total loyalty, he does so with total generosity. And he's so good. He is so good. Question six. What does this parable teach us about God's kingdom? What this parable teaches us, (coughs) excuse me, about God's, something in my throat, What this parable teaches us about God's kingdom is that after the Jewish people and leadership finally reject Jesus, they rejected prophet after prophet after prophet, and now they reject Jesus, it shows that they are ultimately not interested at all in being loyal to him. They're ultimately refusing him. They're ultimately turning from him. And what he does instead, it says in, the, in our passage that he will come and destroy those tenants. And we do see judgment come upon Jerusalem and Israel after this. Jesus talks about the temple being destroyed, which it does. And it says, and he will give the vineyard to others. He doesn't stop being generous after these tenants refuse him. Instead, what he does is he takes his kingdom and he gives it to people from any nationality, any ethnicity, any people who will be loyal to him. Which is why every one of us get a chance to know and love God and be loved by him because he's generous to give himself to anyone who will be loyal to him. The Christian faith or or maybe following God passes from being a religion that is primary ethnically Jewish at this point to being for all peoples from all nations and ethnicities who will come to know him and follow him. See, this beloved son in this parable is obviously Jesus. He, he, he calls himself that earlier on in the Gospel of Luke, or sorry, God the Father does. At his baptism, God the Father says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And so when the Jewish leadership reject Jesus, at that point, His special relationship with Israel ends and he begins a new relationship with all the nations of the world who will confess the name of Jesus. He becomes more generous rather than less generous. And we all have an opportunity to be with him and follow him and love him. The people cannot believe it when Jesus says this. It's like, oh man, you you went too far. Like, surely not, Jesus. Surely not. Surely this won't happen. Surely the vineyard won't be destroyed, or the tenants won't be destroyed and the vineyard given to other people. But verse 17 says, But he looked directly at them. So Jesus looks directly at them. He's going to make a profound point right here. This is something he really wants to get across. And he says, What then is written? What then is written? In other words, what is written down in the Old Testament should make this not seem so surprising to you. What then is written? And he quotes Psalm 118.22. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. It's kind of a strange response. It's a mysterious response. What does Jesus mean by this? He's using a word picture to describe himself. This is a word picture to describe himself. And what he's saying is that the way that I become king over this kingdom is going to shock everyone and produce some shocking changes. That's what it means. The way that I become king over this kingdom is going to shock everyone and produce some, sh- some shocking changes. The word picture he uses is of some people who are building a structure, maybe a structure like the temple that he's standing in right at that moment, and saying they're looking for a cornerstone. A cornerstone is the foundational stone upon which all the structure depends. Okay? And they're looking around, looking for the stone they should use to build this structure, and they see a little stone, and it seems insignificant, it seems unspectacular, it seems small, maybe a little dirty, And they reject it. They say, no, we don't want to use that stone. We want a more impressive stone. We want a larger stone. We want a bigger stone to be the foundational stone of this building. And that stone rises up out of the ash heap and conquers all of them and becomes the foundation stone upon which the entire structure is built. Right? The stone conquers and becomes the cornerstone upon which the entire structure is built. It's a strange image, I know. But it's what the Lord shows. So how do we see this in the life of Jesus? So Jesus seemed insignificant. He was a poor carpenter from the countryside. And when he came to the people and called for their total allegiance... You have to have allegiance to me and to my father. That was offensive to them. It was offensive to them. It didn't seem like someone who was so poor and so humble and so mild should be able to make such big claims. So they said, well, instead of being loyal to you, instead of obeying you, we're just going to nail you to a cross instead. So they beat him, they strip him, they hurt him, they abuse him, just like these tenants abused these servants, and they nailed him to a cross. And at that point, someone could have said, aha, it looks like he failed to become king. It looks like he failed to win a kingdom. It looks like he failed to conquer. But the amazing thing is, is that as he was dying, He was forgiving the sins of millions of people who would be a part of his kingdom. The way Jesus conquers and becomes a king is by dying for all of his people. So the way the world thought it would stop Jesus from becoming king is by killing him. The way that he became my king and your king is he was killed in our place. That's how he rose up and conquered And that's why anyone who trusts in him gets to be a part of his kingdom. It's not how the world thinks of it. It's not how the world designs it. It's anyone who knows they need Jesus gets to be a part of his kingdom. The stone that the builders rejected became the cornerstone. The stone that they tried to kill and reject became the stone on which the entire structure depends. And then Jesus says, Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Please listen to me. If me or you or anyone walks out of this room in opposition to Jesus, and you're in opposition to Jesus when you leave this earth, you will come against him, And you or me or anyone who comes against him will be crushed. It's like we're dashing ourselves against something too strong for us. And it falls on us. And there's nothing so tragic in all the world as opposing Jesus because it more than anything is what will destroy anybody. When Jesus is calling us to surrender, he is calling us to live. When Jesus is calling us to surrender, he is calling us to live. He wants you to live. That's why he brought you to this room. That's why he put me up here to tell you about him. That's why he put this group of people around you to tell you about him. Because he wants you to live. If you don't see his heart that he wants you to live in this text... Let's keep talking about it more because it is there. And my plea with anyone who does not know this Jesus yet, this one who is eager to forgive you, eager to heal you, eager to welcome you into his family forever, I just invite you to speak with me or to speak with someone else before you leave this room. Please don't leave in opposition to Jesus. The reason he wants us to surrender is because he wants us to live. And he warns us about what happens if we don't surrender to him. So we finish walking through our text, what what is our application? What do we want to walk away with? What I'm hoping we walk away with this morning is that as we seek to surrender more to Jesus' authority, We wouldn't start by forcing ourselves to do what he wants us to do, but would start by reminding ourselves of his goodness and all that he did to win our allegiance. He didn't have to send these servants. He didn't have to send his beloved son, but he did. He did. The Apostle Paul asks an amazing question in Romans 2.4. He says, do you not know that God's kindness, God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Well, what is it about God that leads us to repentance? It's his kindness. When it comes to obeying Jesus in more places in your lives, when you see his goodness, it's what makes us want to obey him. What's so profound about being a Christian is that our love and our loyalty to Jesus is what we want to do, right? Worldly worldly religion says you must do this or else. You must do this or else. And it's the way it forces people to comply with things. You must do this or else. When we're in Jesus and we know Jesus, there's no more or else, It's I died for you, I forgive you, I love you, I accept you, so now you can obey me. You see the difference there? We get to obey Jesus because he forgave us. Isn't that a wonderful thing, church? You get to obey Jesus, not so that he doesn't destroy you, but because he already was destroyed for you. We get to obey as forgiven sons and daughters. The big life change Jesus is calling us in this, to this morning is to ask him to help us to grow in our desire to obey him more. Say, I want to obey you. I want you to be Lord over every different part of my life. I'm not going to do it begrudgingly. I'm going to do it lovingly. So I just want you to ask and think, is there an area of your life that you could surrender to Jesus, that you get to surrender to Jesus, that you haven't surrendered to him yet. Could be your choice of friends. Could be your choices of entertainment. It could be what you talk about at work. Could be how you spend your time. Could be what you do when you're alone, when you're depressed, when you're happy. What area of your life is Jesus asking you to submit to him more? Because you want to. You want to obey this one who saved you. And then, as we obey him, we get to have more and more of him, church. So let's pray together. Father, we thank you for sending the beloved son. Isn't it? We are so amazed this morning that you sent the beloved son to show us what you're like so that we would want to obey you more and more, and I ask that we would bear fruit, Jesus, in this church, that we would bear the fruit that comes when we love Jesus more than anything else, and we want to serve him more than anything else. Thank you for coming to us. Thank you for giving yourself to us. Thank you for rescuing us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.